Hello, Great Minds! It's Friday, and that means it's time for Drinks with Great Minds in History, as I get ready to dive into a splendid little piece of Teddy's story that I just couldn't ignore. So welcome to the show, everyone. I'm your host, Mr. DGMH, otherwise known as Zach DeBacco. And if you were guessing from that brief little teaser I gave just a second ago that I would be covering the Spanish-American War, well, you'd be half right. Or at least you would have been. But Teddy is out to beat me, and somewhere between upcoming travel plans, visits from friends and family, and scheduling conflicts, we had to start with the chaser and move a twist of psych to next week. So my grand plans to cover two splendid little wars, the Spanish-American War and the Russo-Japanese War, had to be scrapped for a topic that I could script in a shorter amount of time, something I knew just a little bit more about. But don't you for one second feel jilted, my listeners, as I have decided to cover one of my favorite figures in history, William Jennings Bryan. But before we get into that, today I am busting out one of my least favorite things, non-alcoholic beer. Why? Well, Brian was pretty much anti-everything, including alcohol. It's fine, I have a nice shot for later, but for right now, I'm trying my first O'Doles. I've handed out tons of these at bars that I've worked out in the past, but I've never actually tried one myself. It, it's funny, really. One website described this beer as, quote, a light lager with an inoffensive, if barely there, flavor. And I can't say that I really disagree. So if you got the title of this episode, you know we are going to traverse quickly through the incredibly random saga that is the life of William Jennings Bryan for our chaser to Teddy. Really, Bryan's story is in so many ways the perfect complement to the Teddy episode, at least I think so. Now if you don't get the title, well, I hope you soon will. Right off the bat, we won't be rating Brian on the scale of greatness, in case you're new to the show. It's not that he wasn't a great mind, it's just not what we do on The Chaser. We like to keep these ones a little shorter. But this is one hell of a tale. Operating as a sort of anti-Teddy, maybe bizarro Teddy, to follow the, you know, DC theme of the Teddy episode, Brian was not a badass at all. But as I said, the story of his career rise in epic stagnation did seem to parallel that of Theodore Roosevelt's. And like Teddy, Brian found himself constantly returning when everyone least expected it. Well, at least that's the reaction I get from my students. So let's get to it. The random life and career of William Jennings Bryan, from Cross of Gold to Joe Mendy. But first... It's some history for you, a reason to drink for me. It's the history of the great minds that made history come to be. The Chaser. So who is William Jennings Bryan? Born on March 19, 1860 in Salem, Illinois, unlike Teddy, Bryan was in no way destined for greatness or even to be memorable. One point of note in his early childhood was his conversion moment to Presbyterianism at age 14, a point in his life that he personally considered to be, quote, the most important day of his life and religion would continue to be a force in his life's story. From there, Brian finished homeschooling, then attended college in Jacksonville, Illinois, before heading to Chicago to attend Union Law School. I have to say that it was in this moment of my research when I had to double-take and actually got a little questionable feelings about William Jennings Bryan. At least, maybe. While attending law school, Brian met his future wife and fellow attorney, Mary Elizabeth Baird. Baird. It's definitely Baird. I really should start looking up the way to pronounce these names, but I just don't have the time. And according to one article, Brian, now 24, married his first cousin. Yep, putting Habsburgs to shame, one source sent me down a 30-minute beaver hole, and that's time I just can't get back. 
Worse yet, I cannot even confirm that this is fucking true. So really, I should say he may or may not have married his first cousin. It seems very unlikely that this is true, but since my time was wasted, I figured I might as well waste yours too. If the uncertainty disappoints you, then I would remind you that certain certainties, in this case, would be even more disappointing, as the pair would go on to have three children. Sticking with the non-incestuous version of events, and don't worry, there will be plenty of that to go around this season. I will say, however, that the pair seemed very much in love, and they made for an excellent partnership. Brian biographer Michael Kazin notes, quote, Brian pursued his future wife with the same heartfelt diligence he brought to public speaking. He continues, they met in the autumn of 1879, and Brian fell instantly in love with the attractive, quick-witted young woman of 18. From all existing evidence, he stayed that way until his death 46 years later. And she would always be by his side, much like Teddy's second wife, always there as a sort of balancing influence. But that is enough background for this round of DGMH, and we should probably start talking about that whole public speaking thing. If there's one thing that sets William Jennings Bryan apart from most of his contemporaries, it was his speechcraft and rhetoric. What is even more interesting is that it was one of his earliest speeches that jettisoned him to fame in the Democratic Party, permanently cementing his legacy in U.S. history books around the nation. So we should probably start right there, with the Cross of Gold. Setting the scene, a 27-year-old Brian found himself elected to the House of Representatives for Nebraska, having moved there in 1887, fearing his political ambitions would be stomped out in Illinois. In Nebraska, with the help of his wife, he rose to fame as a powerful orator, orator, and found a support base in the rising populist party. Now, what is a populist? Well, they're about as simple to understand as a progressive, and really not terribly different in some ways. They were the party of the people, the common man. By the end of his career, one of Brian's nicknames would be the Great Commoner, and he certainly was the most noticeable and vocal representative of the common man in the Gilded Age. In three presidential elections, Brian, yes, that's right, I said three, Brian would run on a combination of Democrat and populist support. So in the years leading up to the election of 1896, Brian, a bimetallist, emerged as a strong opponent of the gold standard which was something that was loved by the robber barons of the nation. That is to say, they loved the gold standard and feared William Jennings Bryan. Being on the gold standard kept the U.S. dollar strong in international markets and helped fill the pockets of big businessmen like Rockefeller, Morgan, and Carnegie. That is a gross oversimplification of it all, but understanding that Bryan wanted to mint silver and gold and big business just wanted gold out there gets us to the Democratic National Convention of 1896, where a star was born. But Brian did not enter the nominating convention as a frontrunner, a guaranteed winner. Hell, most people didn't even consider him a real contender, even if he was a noted public speaker. As Brian ascended the Democratic platform, the crowd sat in anticipation as he began to speak. After giving his famous Cross of Gold speech, Brian biographer Michael Kazin notes, quote, For several painful moments, the convention was silent, as if thousands of people were all holding their breath. Then it exploded. Historian James Rourke notes, quote, Pandemonium broke loose as the delegates stampeded to nominate Bryan, the youngest candidate ever to run for the presidency. The New York World wrote, Everybody seemed to go mad at once. But that might leave you wondering, what is the cross of gold? Well, it's a speech. The speech, really, that sent Bryan straight to the top of his political party. Well, the People's Party was part of his party. But here I mean the Democrats. It's actually a fantastic speech. Maybe I'll just read the whole thing right now. Oh my god, I'm fucking kidding. Who the hell would want to listen to that? Here's the best part, though, and I say it a thousand times a year in my classroom. Having behind us the commercial interest and the laboring interest and all the toiling masses, 
we shall answer their demands for a gold standard by saying to them, You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. In his ever-religious style, Brian's words won over the delegates and the American people. I mean, the language hits pretty fucking clear. Kazin notes the main sources of his rhythmic prophecies was clear. Rarely did Brian give a campaign speech devoid of biblical invocations and metaphors. As for the meaning, that one is pretty simple. The cross of gold was a reference to the gold standard, which Americans had been on since the 1870s, and was now under much scrutiny following the financial panic of 1893. Massive layoffs and struggling farmers generated a buzz over inflation policies in the years leading up to the 1896 election. And at the heart of the debate was the free coinage of silver. As the laborers and farmers suffered and were burdened with their own crown of thorns, Brian aimed to remove their troubles by increasing the flow of money in circulation. Oversimplification again, of course, I'm not a fucking economist, I barely understand what I just said. Plus, I can guarantee that none of you are listening to this seeking to enrich your understandings of America's economic past. But if you are, I ask, why? I'm literally sitting here drinking a beer right now. If that's what you're looking for, you might be in the wrong fucking place. Oh, and by the way, I stopped drinking that N.A. shit like five minutes ago. I was sure to bring an ice-cold yingling lager with me just in case I got thirsty. I got thirsty. So yeah, Brian says there will be no crucifying, no gold standard, no suffering laborers anymore. And then he lost. And we probably have our old Teddy episode friend and Republican Party boss Mark Hanna to thank for that one, as he basically ran the campaign for McKinley. And I use that word campaign rather loosely, as McKinley basically parked his ass squarely on his front porch and didn't move for the whole campaign. Hanna was a man of big business, as John D. Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, and Andrew Carnegie plotted to save their own asses and businesses by completely undermining the entire democratic system. Hanna was the man who handled it all. As I mentioned in the Teddy episode, Hanna actually went to high school with Rockefeller, and like the rubber barons, he aimed only to further his own position and agenda, and little to nothing more. But back to Brian. The cross of gold speech may have elevated this young upstart, who by the way was only 36 when he ran for president for the first time, to the front of the Democratic Party. But that wouldn't mean much. Losing the election of 1896 to McMoney, I mean McKinley, by only around 500,000 votes, he decided to make another go in a rematch against McKinley in 1900. It was here that Bryan focused his efforts on a new agenda, speaking out primarily against McKinley's expansionist and imperialist policies. In this election, Bryan spoke on average six hours per day. And, of course, as a teacher, I don't find that terribly impressive or hard to do. Of course, this is the election where Teddy entered the scene. And rough-riding war hero Teddy would not be an easy obstacle for Brian to overcome. In a real embarrassment, McKinley actually increased his percentage of the popular vote and even took Brian's home state of Nebraska. It isn't surprising that Brian took a step back and a little bit of a break from running for president during the Teddy years. Or maybe the Democrats actually just took a break from him. Either way, from 1901 to 1907, Brian battled in the background, criticizing Teddy like many progressives did for not being, quote, progressive enough. In a bit of a shocker to me, he even openly criticized Roosevelt for his infamous dinner with Booker T. Washington. But that was mainly for two reasons. One, he criticized Washington for, quote, chaining the political future of his race to the GOP. And two, he questioned Roosevelt's intentions, saying, quote, and did Roosevelt have any reason to invite Booker T. Washington to dine at the White House other than to secure black votes? He rather openly critiqued Roosevelt, as hard as it is to believe, for not acting enough. Ironically, Brian himself made a bit of a habit of ignoring issues of black voter disenfranchisement altogether during campaigning seasons, as he feared losing the Southern populist vote. A true parallel to Teddy, Brian traveled the world in his time away from politics, and again, like Teddy, Brian would make a massive return. 
Running for president for a third and final time in 1908 against Roosevelt's chosen successor, William Howard Taft, he would lose worse than ever before. But it was in this election that my favorite campaign slogan was born. Vote for Taft today. You can vote for Brian anytime. After his defeat, he stepped back yet again, but he began to publicly campaign for prohibition and women's suffrage, and continued to be a voice of reason and influence in the Democratic Party. After losing the election of 1908, Bryan assured party leaders that he would not seek out the nomination again in 1912. He remained an active voice in the party, however, and he was crucial in choosing the Democratic candidate. He would campaign heavily for Wilson in the Solid South, and this loyalty and support was rewarded with one of the most important cabinet positions, as Bryan became U.S. Secretary of State, unknowingly on the eve of World War. And as the war came, Wilson would have to accept Bryan's resignation. But all this research on Bryan got me curious as to what my favorite Roosevelt biographer had to say about William Jennings Bryan. And it doesn't surprise me that it was nothing amazing. Henry F. Pringle notes in a rather humorous passage, quote, It grew fashionable as decades passed to sneer at William Jennings Bryan. Roosevelt did so, although he borrowed many a platform plank from the man he professed to hold in contempt. He continues, In part, Bryan justified the sneers. He was too often a candidate for presidency. He talked too much, he ate too much, his fanaticism led him to causes which were absurd. The Scopes evolution trial was the worst and the saddest. And if that's all true, then we should probably talk about that trial. So like Teddy, Brian always just kept popping up when you least expected him to. From the moment that he gave his Cross of Gold speech that had the surprise effect of elevating him to democratic stardom, to three presidential election defeats, to World War I prohibition, and so much more. My students are always surprised when one final time he makes an appearance in a small Tennessee courtroom in 1925. But I guess we should probably start a little further back than that. So in November of 1859, Charles Darwin published a book titled On the Origin of the Species, and by 1925, people were still fucking pissed about it. Hell, I'm sure people still are. Hell, I'm sure my grandma still is. But if you don't know, Darwin's work is basically the foundational book on evolutionary biology, which by the 1920s had commonly and embarrassingly been dumbed down to Man Comes from Monkey by America's religious fundamentalist groups. Which brings us back to the Scopes Trial, better known as the Scopes Monkey Trial. In 1925, the state government of Tennessee passed the Butler Act, which prohibited public school teachers from denying biblical accounts of the origin of the species, that is, mankind, nor could they teach evolutionary theory in the classroom. This was, of course, all part of the larger fundamentalist modernist debate that plagued the 1920s. In a deliberate attempt to test the legal... Mm. In a deliberate attempt to test the legality of the act, the ACLU, or American Civil Liberties Union, actually put out an ad in a Dayton newspaper seeking someone to violate the law. The goal in this was simple and explained in a little more detail in the Marshall Saga. But it basically went like this. Get this law up through the courts, eventually having it ruled unconstitutional, and then get it the fuck out of here and stop monkeying around. Oh... The trial evolved into quite the spectacle, as a sort of battleground over evolution in schools took place. Major League U.S. Attorney Clarence Darrow, and yes, by the way, that was a sports reference, I know they're rare, served as John T. Scope's defense attorney. But who could the fundamentalist ever turn to to match the legal strength and popularity of Clarence Darrow? Why, none other than William Jennings Bryan himself. The trial itself drug on for more than a week, and as summer set in with record July temperatures, a fanatic mob of interest groups flowed into Dayton, Tennessee from July 10th to July 21st. The mass crowd and the hot courtroom drew the trial outdoors, as Darrow boldly called Brian himself to the stand. 
In a short and oversimplified version of the story and proceedings, Darrow's rigorous questioning of Brian, although not totally admissible in court, shocked the world, as Brian essentially acknowledged the allegorical nature of some biblical stories. In doing so, Darrow had opened the floodgates to a river of doubt on the Bible's origin stories. The exchange lasted more than two hours. Darrow went as far as to say to Brian in the heated exchange, you insult every man of science and learning in the world because he does not believe in your full religion. Did it fucking matter? Nope. The questioning was thrown out entirely, Scopes was found guilty, and he was fined $100, which is about $1,000 to $1,500 today. Brian would say to reporters after the trials, quote, Science is a magnificent force, but it is not a teacher of morals. If civilization is to be saved from the wreckage that threatened by intelligence not consecrated by love, it must be saved by the moral code of the meek and lowly Nazarene. His teachings and his teachings alone can solve the problems that vex the heart and perplex the world. But that leaves me wondering what the hell that has to do with the case. Clarence Darrow would go on to defend Osian Sweet, who by the way has a fucking fascinating story, maybe for another day or a Patreon bonus moment, but for now just note that it was a high-profile case and certainly not his last. And as for Brian, well, hmm, no more surprises for him, he went on to die just five days after the trial's end. Historians, of course, like to debate whether the trial was the primary motivator for his prompt death. As for the Butler Law, well, that stupid-ass thing wouldn't die until 1967. Now, I did promise listeners a, moment mo a bonus moment in the margins on Alice Roosevelt during The Chaser, available to all Patreon supporters. It's coming, I promise, but I made that claim when I thought I had two weeks to write it. Don't worry, you should get it next week, but definitely by the end of the month. But there is still plenty to enjoy over on the DGMH Patreon page. Just follow the link in the show notes to get access to it all and join in the insanity. But there's still more to say today. Now, as we wrap this up, I knew I couldn't go a whole episode of the Teddy Saga without a moment of badassery. So this bit has next to nothing to do with William Jennings Bryan, save only the spectacle that arose from the Scopes trial. But one singular moment really put the monkey in the Scopes monkey trial, when in a saucy little plaid suit arrived Joe Mendy. You may remember me mentioning Darwin. Well, Darwin theorized only that man and apes had a common ancestor, not that man had descended from apes. But that was a pretty popular misconception, and one entertainer decided to capitalize on it. That's right, of all the craziness that descended upon Dayton, Tennessee, I was always most surprised and amused by the arrival of a little stage chimp named Joe Mendy. What was even more surprising was the rich history of Joe Mendy himself. Is that the right phrase? Oh well. First purchased by Lou Backenstow from a broker in Cape Town, South Africa, the three-month-old chimp made his way to the United States in 1923. Fifteen months later, Joe was marketed as the 18-month-old chimp with the intelligence of a five-year-old. Backenstow was said to have remarked during Mendy's Tennessee cameo, quote, Joe Mendy was asked to appear at the trial but did not testify. However, he did perform all around the town as a true media circus unfolded. He even played his famous miniature piano and sipped on some Coca-Cola at the local drugstore. By the 1920s, Joe Mendy was more than just a circus sensation. He was starring in films and even appearing on Broadway, but after nearly a decade of stellar showmanship, Joe Mendy passed while on the road in 1930. His stardom was taken over by Joe Mendy, who is often considered to be the, quote, greatest performing chimp of all time. And I feel like I should note that it is now commonly accepted that chimps like Joe Mendy don't make for the best pets. The Jane Goodall Institute notes that they, quote, can become aggressive and rebellious, but Joe Mendy sure was adorable in that little plaid suit. 
Well, that's it. If you enjoyed this episode of Drinks with Great Minds in History, then please consider supporting the show over on the DGMH Patreon page. Their listeners can get access to all sorts of bonus content, from an extra moment with Mr. DGMH to Cullen Chats China, where Cullen chats with me about China, apparently a portion of history that I know next to nothing about. You can also get access to bonus Twist of Sykes and Shots Heard Around the World episodes, and so, so, so much more. Just follow the link in the show notes to get access to this exclusive content. Please consider leaving the show a great, hopefully five-star review wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, and consider following the show on Instagram and Twitter at DGMH History and join in the conversation at the DGMH Facebook group. Well, that's it. This episode has pushed down upon the brow of this podcaster a shitty non-alcoholic beer, but I won't crucify my listenership with a rating of this shit. Instead, I will just take a shot of Goldschlager. Goldschlager. A shot of Goldschlager. Now, I have always been more of a Fireball or Jackfire fan, but honestly, this stuff isn't that bad. And if the reason for this choice isn't clear, then you clearly haven't been listening to a fucking thing. Well, today we raise a glass to William Jennings Bryan. From the cross of gold to a chimp named Joe Mendy, you kept things interesting and you always had a habit of showing up when we least expected it. Much like you did for me in this episode of The Chaser. So to that, I raise a glass to you and say, cheers.